This is the Commonwealth City Church Podcast. Thanks for listening. Commonwealth is a church in Lexington, Kentucky. For more info, visit our website at commonwealthcitychurch.com and follow us on Instagram at comcitychurch. We hope you enjoy the message. Um, I want to take us to just a quick moment to kind of just create some space for some lament this morning. Um, the last couple weeks, the headlines have been hard with things in Afghanistan, with things in Haiti, from COVID firing back up across the nation and across the world, over four and a half million global deaths. Um, from we are in a, we have a, many of you, many of us are in a group me together called Upper Room. That's a prayer group me here for Com City. If you're not in that, uh, come see one of us. Shoot us an email info at commonwealthcitychurch.com to to get added to that list. Um, but we get to see a number of prayer requests. And like, if we're honest, like there's just a lot to lament over uh, in our world, in our relationships, in our community. And there might be some things I've not even mentioned. There could be cancer journeys. There could be um, tough news that you've heard from a friend or a family member. And we just want to create space for that this morning. So I'm just going to ask you, we're not going to have like music in the background. I'm just going to ask you to kind of posture yourself, to bow your head, bow your heart. And just create a little space to lament before the Lord some of the distress, some of the troubles, and just to ask him, just to ask him to be present, um, to ask him to, to bring peace, to bring healing, and just petition to him this morning, and then I'll close us out in a prayer. So create some space for some lament. Lord, we are a deeply distressed people at times. I mean, it is easy to look out over our world to see the stories of destruction of natural disaster in a place like Haiti, uh, to people displaced, to people that have lost their lives, the families that it affects, to countries like Afghanistan, where it seems to, to really be in a state of turmoil and uproar and men, women, and children um, being captured and killed, and especially those that are for the cause of Christ, those that are bearing the mission of Jesus. So just like in your word, Lord, we are distressed like you are in your word. We are distressed, but you taught us to lament, and we confess that we don't understand everything. We ask, we, we are people that ask questions like, why and where are you? Lord, we confess in the midst of that, and know that you are faithful. Even over difficult things, you're faithful. In our lives, you're faithful. In our relationships, you're faithful. In our world, you're faithful. Lord, we trust you. Because of the cross, we know that our grief has been borne by another for us. Jesus, you are the ultimate bearer of grief. We have great confidence, Lord, that one day there will not be a single tear left to wipe away, so we have great hope in you, O Lord our God, and we proclaim you, our trust in you, our faith in you, our steadfast hope in you. It's in your name we pray, amen.
Thanks for joining me in that today. We're in Colossians chapter 2, verse 8. Just one verse today, as Corinne read, read to us. So we're going to dive right into this. I intend to be brief today, as we've got some things in the back end of our service to, that we want to really invite you into. And so um, we're just going to kind of roll through this um, and pay close attention to what Paul asked us to pay close attention to. Starting in verse 8, it says, See to it that no one takes you captive. See to it that no one takes you captive. That phrase, see to it, uh, is really what's called in the Greek language an imperative. Now, I don't know if you're familiar with imperative language, um, but let me tell you the way that I know it. When Julie Eaton, who is one of the most godly and gracious women that I've ever met in my life, snaps her fingers and says, Andrew Stephen Eaton, that's got imperative language written all over it, okay? When she calls me by my middle name, like my loving, mild-mannered, meek, and gracious mother can certainly get my attention if it needs to be gotten. Does that make sense? Some of you guys understand this as well. This is kind of Paul's moment of snapping his fingers and pointing at us, listen up, see to it, be watchful, be aware, um, be, be concerned with, like pay attention so that no one takes you captive by philosophy and empty deceit according to human tradition, according to the elemental spirits of the world, and not according to Christ. The reason that he is imperatively saying, be careful, be watchful, is that it's easy to get caught up in a current different than the one the Spirit would take us on. It's easy to. It is not hard to drift. The author of Hebrews says it this way in chapter 2, verse 1. He says, therefore, we must pay closer attention to that which we have heard, lest we drift away from it. Like in today's age, and again, I've talked about this from the stage before. If you've seen the documentary, The Social Dilemma, like you might know a little bit of what we're talking about if you've paid attention to the influences and the algorithms that are all around us. Like today, more than ever before, it is so easy and compelling to get caught up in a different current that starts to drive our thoughts, starts to drive our reactions, and starts to drive our emotions. In fact, it's kind of housed here in the verse. One of the things that makes it, makes it easy for us to drift is that we become captive to that which captivates us. I don't know if you've ever noticed that or not, but the word captive is the root word for captivate or captivating. And so if you've ever been captivated by a stream of thought or an emotion or a response, then it makes perfect sense that we might become captive by it. There is something attractive about philosophy. Now, I don't know if you know the word philosophy. When you think philosophy, you might think of like old dead people, like, you know, the statues of them and like Rome or Greece. But the word philosophy is it's literally a, a compound word of two Greek words, philosophia, and it just means those that love wisdom. So philo is, is the word for love. It's where we get the word for Philadelphia, the city of brotherly love. Um, it's the word for, for what it means to love. And then Sophia is the Greek word for wisdom. And it's just people that love and pursue wisdom. Well, hello, Wikipedia. That's all of us, right? Like, I don't know about you, but I can be watching a movie and I'm like, where have I seen that actor before? And before you know it, it's like I've got the little blue hue happening in my movie seat in the theater. I'm that guy, right? And I'm looking through like the filmography on Wikipedia to see what else they've been in. This is the world we live in. I don't know if I'm the only crazy person. I trust that some of you people do that too. And you'll just start going down rabbit holes and this and that and everything when it comes to stuff that piques your interest or that captivates you. If you've ever been captivated, you know how quickly you can be captive to it. 
Sometimes we notice that when we're distracted when we drive. Sometimes we notice that when we're in a conversation with somebody. But again, maybe this is just an Andrew confession in conversation with somebody, but my ADD brain is like somewhere totally else because I am both captive and captivated by something else. And the person that's talking to me is like, hey, what's going on? Right? Like, I don't know if you've ever experienced this before, but this is my life. This is my story. It's easy to be attracted to like a love and pursuance of of wisdom and especially wisdom that can oftentimes be according to human traditionals, traditions. In fact, that word, it kind of sounds a little creepy. Um, the end of verse 8, this elemental spirits of the world. Okay, like I don't want you to think voodoo. What Paul's talking about here, and literally what the Greek translation would say to this, is worldly principles that have been around from the beginning. Like it's not like some weird voodoo-y kind of earthly elemental spirits. He talks about spirits that have been prevailing to kind of go after humankind from the beginning. One of which... One of which, an elementary principle or an elemental spirit of the world, would literally just be the phrase, did God really say? You want to talk about who's the author of deconstructionism? Let's look at the Garden of Eden, right? Did God really say? Did he really say? He's been asking that phrase ever since. Now, I'm not saying there's not healthy deconstructionist thought. In fact, Jesus was even a bit of a deconstructionist to the to the corruption of the religion, all right? But, but I'm just saying that like that concept started at the beginning. So these elemental principles, these worldly principles, there's something attractive about them. And what Paul is saying here is see to it that you're not captured and controlled by the wisdom of the world. In fact, it's so easy to get caught up in a stream that actually speaks to our emotions and our mindsets and our worldview and really takes control over us. We say things like, how do they not see it the way I see it? What are they thinking? Don't they, what, like, how do they think that way? We find ourselves doing this now more than ever, whether it's social, whether it's cultural, whether it's in academia, whether it's political philosophy, we, we ask all the time, how do they not see it that way? How, why, why is this, what's, What's different between my eyes and someone else's? This year, if I'm honest, probably more this past maybe a year and a half, 18 months, probably more than any other 18-month season of my life, have I been tempted to read and learn and be motivated by outlets of news and media and information available at my fingertips um, than I ever have before. In fact, I've been tempted to do that and kind of even neglect the Word of God and the authority of his scriptures. Now, some of you might be saying, but Andrew, the Bible didn't tell me everything I needed to know about COVID. It doesn't have CDC data in it. Okay, like, Andrew, like, it doesn't tell me what I, what I need to know about, uh, you know, exactly who I'm supposed to vote for. It doesn't tell me what I'm supposed to do. Like, we could argue those things, but here's what I can say. Why, why there is no scripture verse that says, thou shalt vote for so-and-so. Why there is no scripture verse that, that, quantifies or qualifies CDC data, what there is, is a life-giving word that can speak more to my anxiety and my fear and my frustration and my worry than anything on CNN or Fox News, than anything on Twitter, than anything on Facebook. And so we look at our current world. I don't know if you've seen this. This data is actually a little bit old. 
It's maybe two years old, so I would actually argue that it's probably even more, more of a gap now than it was when it was first accumulated. But it says in the life of a millennial, which is somebody born in like 1985, that's me, all the way up to, I think, 1999 or close to the year 2000. In the life of a millennial, we, on a given year, consume close to 3,000 hours of content. 3,000 hours of content in a given year terms of ingesting media, information, all these different things. This is for Christians. This is not, they're not surveying non-Christians. For those that admit to following Jesus, we consume over 3,000 hours of content a year. In the life of the Christian millennial, only 150 of those hours are about Jesus or the Word of God. Now, I don't know about you, but anything that you give 20 more times to is going to have some influence on you. It's easy to be captive by what captivates us. Now, we could meddle. We could play the hits of where CNN's fake news or Fox News is fake news or Facebook is fake news or whatever notable Christian has now, like, walked away from the faith or deconstructed. Like, we could get up here and rant and meddle and kind of, like, peer into all these, like, personal specific examples. We could rant about politics we could take this verse and give you a number of things, and I could even kind of lean in and be like, if you're a believer, you should avoid this, this, and this, and you should do this, this, and this. But for me, that loses the essence of what Paul's trying to communicate here, because the essence for me is housed in the very last phrase, that these things that we would pursue or be captive to in the world, and worldly wisdom, and worldly pursuits, and worldly philosophies, are not what we learned according to Christ. In fact, they undo what he said in verse 6 and 7. In the same way that you received Jesus as Lord, walk in him, rooted and built up and established in the faith, just as you were taught and abounding in thanksgiving. This verse kind of works to be a, a lens where we can start to identify what in our life can be idolistic. Not I-D-L-E, but I-D-O-L. We all have idols. And idols are not statues that we bow to and worship. Idols are anything in our life that is more fundamental to our happiness, our meaning, or our identity than God is. Anything in our life that's more fundamental to our happiness, our meaning, and our identity than God is. And the confession is, probably more than we're aware, a lot of things can fight for those categories so quickly and so easily. Now, like I said, we could pick this apart. We, could throw, we did a bunch of lists on the screen last week. Throw a bunch of inventory up to you to consider. But I don't want to look when I mention the essence of this verse, at the fake things, I want to look at the real thing. When I was a college student, I uh, worked my way through college, part-time job in the semesters, full-time job in the summer at Fifth Third Bank. Way to go, Fifth Third. Thanks for helping me out. Um, right down here, I was starting in the Blue Building downtown, ended up being a, a working in the branches. I got on Nicholsville Road and in Bell Reeve and in, uh, in Nicholsville, technically Jessamine County. And we had, and this is like 2004, 2005, there was a string of counterfeiters that came through Lexington. Now, I don't know if you know anything about the counter, counterfeit production of money or the production of counterfeit money, um, but if a store brings their deposit, so when you go to a store and you pay for, with cash, whether it's a gas station or a boutique or a grocery store or whatever, and you pay with cash, like they keep all that cash on hand, they bring it to the bank almost always the first thing in the morning, and they deposit it into their account, so they don't keep that much cash on hand, Right? And so if, they, if a customer brings the bank a bunch of counterfeit bills, this is sad on two levels. 
One, we don't think they're guilty of counterfeiting, but what we can't do as a bank is receive that cash. So we have to kind of keep it, but they don't get credit for it in their deposit. And then they don't get any, we don't have like any insurance money. Like they just lose that money. They don't get to count it. They're just out that money. And so counterfeiting really steals from the business. Does that make sense? And so there was a string of counterfeiters that had happened in Lexington so much so that in like 2004, 2005, one Saturday, we had a mandatory training. All of our branches, all of our employees, all of the people that handle our customer facing, a mandatory training on counterfeiters and counterfeit money here in Lexington. So all of us got together. I don't remember where we did it. It was this big lecture, and they brought in someone from the government. A little bit of trivia here. If you're not familiar with this, the government agency that's in charge of counterfeiting is the Secret Service. I don't know if you knew that or not. They don't just protect the president. Uh, they also are the agency over counterfeit currency. And so he comes in, and we have like a four-hour workshop with this member of the Secret Service all on counterfeit bills. And here's what's crazy. For four hours, we didn't talk about one specific counterfeit bill. For four hours, we talked about how to know true United States-issued American currency all the way through. I could tell you every microscopic thing on a $20 bill, where the lines were, the secret text that's hidden in the border, what the paper's made up of, like all these things. We spent four hours not ever focused on the fake thing, but focused on the real thing. Because if we know the real thing, then we can always easily spot the fakes. And the essence of this verse for me is not to focus on the fake things that sometimes trip us up and pull us away, but it's to focus on the real thing. So if our confession is that we are often captive to that which is captivating, that means we have to ask this, does Jesus captivate you and does he capture you with his love, with his grace and his redemption? We pray in this church that he does. But the real danger here is that when it comes to your faith, you might say, I'm trying to be a good Christian rather than say, I am captured in Christ. We don't want to teach any of you to say, I'm trying to be a good Christian. We want to teach every one of you to say, I am found in Christ. In fact, as we continue to unfold the book of Colossians, we're going to be invited into that identity more and more and more. So that being true, we're going to ask the question, are you captured by the work of Christ? And if you're maybe not, we're going to stare at the real thing for a few moments this morning. And we're going to start with the reality that before Christ has captured you, something else has, and that something is sin. That thing that's captured you is your predisposition, no matter what, to be a sinful man or woman, boy or girl person. Mine too. In fact, the Bible says numerous places that like we have a sinful nature. Romans, Romans uh, it says that for the wages of sin is death. And then Romans 6, 23, it says um, that, that, that we will, for, I'm sorry, the wage of sin is death is Romans 6, 23. 23, Romans 3.23, for all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. And we recognize that not only have we all sinned, but because there's a price that we have to pay for our sin, that we all, not only are sinful, not only has sin captured us, but it's penalized us. And it's penalized us with the promise of death. And if it's unredeemed, then it's penalized us with the promise and the certainty of a total separation from God. But we have good news. Jesus, when he was born, he grows up into the world. He finds himself in the the temple. He rips out the scroll from the book of Isaiah. He opens it up in the temple and he says, 
I'm about to teach you something today. And he reads from Isaiah 61, and he says this, The Spirit of the Sovereign Lord is upon me, and he has anointed me to preach the good news to the poor, to bind up the brokenhearted, to set freedom to the captive, and to proclaim liberty for all those who are bound. And he kind of puts the scroll up, and he says, Today, this is fulfilled in your midst. If Jesus has a mission statement, it's Isaiah 61.1, to preach, proclaim, and set free. How does he do that? Does he do that by being a good teacher? Does he do that just by being a good person? Does he do that by motivating the masses to believe his words? No, he does that through the cross and the resurrection. Jesus, because of his, of his identity as both fully man and fully God, recognized the wrath and the penalty that we face as those that have fallen short of the standard of holiness that belongs to the Lord. He recognizes it. And he recognizes that somebody has to pay that penalty. And so as Philippians chapter 2 would tell us, he humbly positions himself to take the full penalty of our sin and to be our substitute, a, a sub sacrificial substitute to absorb the wrath of God in my place and yours. At the cross of Calvary, Jesus paid the penalty of every sin you have committed, are committing, and will commit. He paid the penalty of it. Pay the absolute penalty of it. And then, even after his death on the cross, he was resurrected. And in resurrected, he gives us the ultimate judgment on sin, shame, and death. That it can no longer tarnish Christ or those that are in him. Not those that are trying to be good Christians, but those that are in him identifiably. So we have freedom. Because Christ takes, frees us from being captive to sin and death and shame, and he handcuffs us to his righteousness. I don't know if you've ever seen those movies where it's like there's the guy that has the nuclear codes in the briefcase, and they always get like handcuffed, and then somehow the handcuff always gets broken off, and that's kind of the plot of the movie, right? But there's like these like special agents, and they got this briefcase handcuffed to them. Like, I want you to use that imagery with like, that's Christ's righteousness. Like, you just are constantly cuffed to it. Like, you're constantly shackled to the righteousness of Christ on your behalf because of the perfect life he lived and the exchange of your, his righteousness for your sin. 2 Corinthians 5.21 says, He became sin who knew no sin, so that in him, not trying to live a good Christian life, but in him, we might become what? The righteousness of Christ. Romans 6, 17 and 18 says, Once you were slaves of sin, but now you wholeheartedly obey his teaching, and you are now free from your slavery of sin and have become, in fact, slaves to righteousness. So you were once captive by sin. Jesus came to free you. He gives you freedom because of the finished work of Christ. And now you are free to experience his promises and you're fixed to stand on his promises. When we look at these worldly philosophies that Paul talks about in chapter 2, verse 8, the reality is these worldly principles can't hold you up. They can't hold you up. I don't know if you've ever like, you know, maybe in your adulthood, you go back and play like on the playground you did when you were in middle school or elementary school and you realize that the things that you thought were like big and massive, like the slides or like the little teeter-totters, like they're kind of paltry and kind of sad. And I don't know, like maybe not everybody is quite my size, but if I step on some of those things, it's like, ah, I don't know if this is going to hold me up. You know, like I don't know if this teeter-totter was built for somebody my height or my weight. Like 
It can be a little scary. That's what worldly principles do. They might offer you something. They might captivate you. They might say, do this, this, and this, and you'll receive this. But Paul says, see to it, be warned that no one takes you captive because you know something different according to Christ. There's a different formula that you get to live into, which is to walk in your freedom of your righteousness in Christ, fixed to stand on his promises, and they can hold your weight. They can hold you up. Because of the gospel, because of the completed, accomplished, finished work of Jesus, every promise of God finds its completion and its yes and its finality in Christ. So we're going to have a quick little moment of interaction here. It's good for us to hear from each other. It's good for us to know that there's people in the room that have said, I'm not going to be captive by the prevailing thoughts of our cultural winds or societal winds or worldly winds. I'm actually going to hitch myself to Jesus. I'm going to open my sail and trust the spirit of the living God to blow, blow in my sails and to move me along his path. I'm going to trust that. And I come out at a different outcome. And so I'm going to ask you, what are the promises of God that we stand on today? Okay. You might think that was rhetorical. I'm asking you to tell me some of them. I'm going to say them out loud so that everybody can hear. And so their video can hear. What are the promises of God that we are fixed to stand on? Somebody shout some out. Salvation. What else? Forgiveness. We're forgiven forever because of the work of Jesus. What else? Hope. What would you say? Mercy. Mercy. Hope. Yes, we, we are promised perpetual hope in Christ, a steadfast hope, and mercy to cover us. What else? He'll never leave us or forsake us. We have an inheritance. The gospel of Jesus, a heavenly inheritance, but held for us, but also available to us to walk in the truth of now. What else? Love. We, have, we know that we are constantly facing the author of compassionate and steadfast love. What else? His presence is always promised to us. In fact, when we look at the word, we find Jesus teach these two parables when it comes to being captivated by the goodness of God. He says this, the kingdom of heaven is like a treasure hidden in a field, which a man found and covered up. Then in his joy, he goes and sells everything that he has. And he does what? Buys the field because he's captivated by the treasures that's in it. Again, the kingdom of heaven is like a merchant in search of fine pearls who on finding one pearl of great value went and sold all that he had and bought it. And so as we read these parables that talk about the, how we are both captivated and captive to Jesus, we have to ask this question today. Last week we put on a slide on the screen, therefore as you receive Christ, how have you received him? We'll, answer, we'll ask that question again. And how has he captivated you? We sang a song earlier really loud, oh praise the one, oh praise the one who who took my, my shame, took my sin, defeated death in the grave. We sang it out. Did we sing it out because we were compliant with what Kurt said? Sing loud! Or did we sing it out because he's captured you with that love? Did we sing it out because you really do praise the one who made you alive again? I'm going to ask you, this is not to turn into me, but to do some homework this week. Make a list of how you're captured in the love, in the grace, in the righteousness, in the forgiveness, all these promises of Jesus. 
Make a list of how you've been captivated and captured by Christ. And I want to give you just a, a commissioning. Tell somebody that. Don't make excuses. Tell somebody. Even if it's just telling someone in your family to be reminded of the goodness of the gospel. Listen, y'all, we talk about a lot of things and none of it's enough gospel. Myself included. We don't talk about it enough. I know I've used the Lion King story a lot here, the whole like, say it again, like George the Hyena, right? Mufasa, Ooh, say it again. You know, like we, we've talked about that before. When we talk about the gospel of Jesus, it should be a say it again emotion. When you hear about the goodness of God at work in someone's life, you should be like, oh, I need more of that. And I need so much more of it that I want to offer my story. And I want to talk about the promises that I feel like I stand on today. And I want to explain the ways that I'm captive by captured in the work of Jesus. So make a list. What has captured you? How have you received him? How are you captivated by the work of Jesus? How do you sell everything you have and buy the field because you cherish the treasure that is Christ Jesus? We ask you these things today. Let's not focus on the fake things. Let's focus on the real thing. Let's pray. Jesus, we thank you so much for this morning. We thank you for the truth of your word. As we move to a time of communion, we thank you for uh, just for, for Claire and the journey that she's been on as she invites us into, into communion from afar today. Um, Lord, we pray that we just be people that take, eat, and participate what it means to, to be a member of the kingdom who sells everything we have and chases after you our treasure and our value. Lord, captivate us and capture us by your love, your grace, and your redemption. It's in your name we pray. Amen.